2: During the pandemic, many people turned to art to process their feelings and cope with loss. Others turned to local artists to contextualize the current moment. Art has the ability to comfort us and get us through difficult times. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, three New Haven artists and disruptors on the ways they are using art to affect change. Later in the show, we'll hear how a fashion stylist and small business owner is using her expertise to empower local creatives. And the artistic director of the Long Wharf Theatre shares his vision for making theatre more inclusive. But first, how can public art revitalize local neighborhoods and bring people together? Quayjo Adai is a New Haven artist and founder of the Adai Fine Art Academy. He recently completed a new mural that honors the life and legacy of Black physicist Dr. Edward Alexander Boucher. Quayjo, welcome to Disrupted.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: You have created prolific pieces of public art across New Haven, but also across Connecticut. And your reputation as a visual artist is fantastic. But some people may be surprised that you actually got your start in the corporate sector. Talk to our listeners about how you discovered your love and passion for art and how you decided to do that full time.
3: Oh, my goodness. So I was... Creating art when I was like six, seven years old, and I had a really wonderful teacher who recommended to my parents that I had some type of art outlet because I was doodling on all my tests and quizzes in school. So they put me in these regular Saturday classes. They were were two hour classes and it was like my solace and I couldn't wait for them each week to to go and just create whatever I wanted, which became the format for, uh, for my school but it was a really beautiful thing to have something of my own, where I could be whatever I wanted to be, right? Where I could create anything I wanted to create. Um, so yeah, it was it was wonderful to just have that outlet. It's so important uh, for kids to have that. Uh, so the corporate thing happened when I graduated from undergrad. I graduated with a, a degree in public health and Asian history. And in order to pay down my debts, I worked for an insurance company in Hartford and I did that for two and a half years, and was just absolutely miserable there. I was really at a low point, and I ended up just quitting one day with no jobs lined up. And that coincided with a, an art teacher's job fair in New Haven because there was like a like a very severe shortage that year for teachers. And so I chose the one that had a had a, had a classroom because there were some that were on art carts, and that was the the real turning point in my life changing from corporate world where I worked in insurance to jumping into being an artist, embracing that part of myself and running with it.
2: There's so much embedded in your experience that is relevant for young people, that choice between doing what you feel like you have to versus doing what really feeds your soul. And one of the things that I appreciate about your work before we talk about the murals is that you have created this Fine Art Academy since 2005, and you provide access to art for people across the community, regardless of skill level, across age, across all of these different groups, so that people can connect to art as this source of refuge, really, for many of us who are seeking that Talk to us about that project and how you see the Art Academy speaking to the power of art as it has been in your life.
3: When I went and got a master's in art, as I was like furthering my career path to be more of an artist, I went to NYU for their master's program. And when I graduated, I was unable to get a job anywhere. Like I sent so many resumes to schools in like a hundred mile radius of New Haven, um, community colleges. I just was unable to teach at the collegiate level. So I had this epiphany where I was like, well, if I can't get these institutions to hire me, why don't I just create my own school and hire myself? It seems like that's the only way that this is gonna happen. So I put a press release in the paper and we ended up having six students in the very beginning back in 2005 which has steadily grown like a plant over the years. And I embrace everybody um, because we have a format for teaching and a format for our students to learn that's unlike any other. And that is you create what you want to create. Like, I don't need to make the format for you. You tell me what you want to do. So uh, I have students that are just like, you know what? I really want to learn how to paint landscapes. That's what we'll do. Oh, I really want to learn how to do portraits in oil. I've always wanted to try that. That's exactly what we'll do instead of this is an advanced class for drawing only. And like, oh, you only need to be a beginner for this class. That model sometimes can limit people because you have to assess, uh, you have to self-assess how you see your creation. And art is just another language. And if you are able to practice that language, you will gain proficiency in it. So when I'm teaching the children's classes, when I'm teaching the adult classes, when I was in pre-COVID teaching at the assisted living centers, at the mental health clinics, uh, after school programs, uh, teaching at uh, senior centers where the population is 98% Spanish speaking. Like you can speak that language to anyone across the, the board. And then you allow people the opportunity to create these, these statements uh, of visual language. And after a while, The fluency is just blossoming. It's really a beautiful thing to witness.
2: One of the, the ways that you are using language to tell these big, powerful stories and to connect people to those stories who may not ordinarily see themselves connected to art in that way is through these large scale murals and they are placed in prominent public spaces. And that notion of public art as a way of connecting people and providing a vehicle for conversation is so important. What is it about public art and murals that is so attractive to you and now part of your repertoire?
3: my Goodness, if I make a small painting of flowers, let's say that it's like a, a foot by a foot, that is a, a statement of language when it is on a mural and it is an 18 by 106 foot piece, it, it's amplified in its size and it's amplified in its statement. So it's kind of like the difference between speaking and shouting something, if you're if we were gonna analogize it in that way. Uh, the other thing is when it's so large that I can't do it alone, or I can do it alone, but when I can invite the community to help me, then it's this collaborative, beautiful process that it it grows with us and then we own it together. It's not just me making what I want with my language, but it's like a community of people creating. And that's a really important thing for the public to be engaged in because it is a public wall. It's our, our public spaces can do so much. And when places don't have murals and don't have art, and then you see the transformation between the before and after, the spaces really do change dramatically uh, when you have something to look at, when you have trees planted there. Like it's it's a it's a huge transformation and it is a way for the public to take control of their space through artists. Like we can be that catalysts for change in a neighborhood uh, when other things can't.
2: You bring beauty to those neighborhoods. You affirm the beauty that already exists there. And so one of the joys for me is every Sunday on my way to Community Baptist Church, I get to pass by your newest mural. And it is the striking mural that's honoring Dr. Edward Alexander Boucher who for our listeners who may not be familiar, but they should know, was this noted physicist from New Haven. And it's a striking piece for a number of reasons. The colors, the brightness, and the texture of the color. But Quajo, what also strikes me is the juxtaposition of this beautiful piece of art. And in the corner is a sign that's attached to the building that says, no loitering, no trespassing and having that juxtaposition of communities defining for themselves their their right to be with the beauty of that piece. What was the inspiration for that piece? And what was the process like of bringing it into existence?
3: Dr. Ruscha, for me, when I first learned about him, who he was and how he is a native New Haven person who did all of this stuff, has these ties to the Hopkins School, ties to the Yale physics department and Yale university, the first black PhD in the United States, and is buried in New Haven. I'm just like, why have I not heard about this person? Why did I not hear about him in school? Why is there not already a huge statue somewhere in the city about this man? Has he been subverted in a way? And when you realize that the answer is yes, and that you're also a public artist that can change that, I felt compelled to do it. So I did a lot of research on him. I visited his grave in Evergreen Cemetery and asked him for just some help, uh, in bringing this to fruition. And then you have to think about the context. Uh, he got his PhD in 1876. That's not so long after the end of the Civil War. And at that time, the prevailing theory was that Blacks were intellectually inferior to whites and they were not, we did not have the same types of schools or access to knowledge or education. So to do what he accomplished in the context of the time that he did it is really an important thing. And I didn't want people that are in this community to not realize that he was here and to not realize this groundbreaking accomplishment. It's important to understand through the context of history uh, what what his accomplishments were. So I originally wanted to get this mural Downtown at the back of 55 Church, and that was in 2019. And I was actually denied permission from the building owner at the time. Um, it was going to be like a 50 by 65 foot wall, like an enormous piece. And the contractor was going to sell the build, or the the building owner was going to sell the building potentially. And he just didn't want it. And people had there was so much community support behind this piece. They're like, you know what? Let's let's protest. Let's let's like shout at this person. And I'm like, no, no, no. This is consent, he is the owner of the building, he has the right to say no. So when I was able to find a spot after doing the, I did a sparrow mural up the street in the New Hallville neighborhood, I found this spot on the community Baptist church that was a pink wall, it had been pink for years. And I reached out to them and they were like, wait a minute, are you that gentleman that made the birds? Are you that gentleman that painted the sparrows up the street? And I was like, yes, yes, that's me. You know, I wanna honor this doctor. Have you heard of Dr. Edward Alexander Boucher? And they were so overjoyed and so happy and so cooperative. And we went to work, we uh, then started applying for grants. So we got a grant from the Department of Arts, Culture and Tourism in the city of New Haven. Uh, and then I just asked the Hopkins School and I asked uh, Yale University if they would donate towards this project and help me honor the, their alum. And they were just like, yeah, absolutely, sure. So it, it's very rare that all parties come together to create, to like fund a project like this. But everything came very, very seamlessly. And then my son and I, Kwesi, we just went to work and it ended up taking 14 business days of work. We were out there painting, you know, projecting, power washing, priming. And then there's this day that comes where it's just finished and you're like, oh, he's here. Like the image of his portrait is now on these streets. His name is here, his accomplishments are here now people have the opportunity to learn about this man. And um, it was a really beautiful process.
2: That heartbeat that connects us, that ancestral lineage has been a present theme in a number of other pieces that you've created. And so last year, you were part of the Black Lives Matter mural in the Elm City to bring attention to not just social justice in terms of the events of the day, but that longer lineage that you just referenced. How do you see art as a vehicle for having those conversations that are uncomfortable, but are so necessary?
3: I believe that art, especially public art, can help us process the times that we're going through before we have the ability and opportunity to name and speak words to what is happening currently. And the fact that it's universal, the fact that anyone from anywhere can recognize like a a visual symbol more than they can with language makes it a very effective tool for the dissemination of ideas. And last summer with the George Floyd protests, you know, it was the biggest marches that I've ever seen, biggest marches that I've ever been in. I've marched with Black Lives Matter for... For years, and I've never seen so many people come out. Uh, and then the previous year, when Hamden Yale police fired shots on Stephanie Washington and Paul Witherspoon, which prompted me to create the Sparrow Squadron mural at Dixville and Division, we marched with Yale students for the first time, and like so many of them. So you can really connect through art, and it's a it's a really powerful tool. When words are failing and words fail all the time. Words fail all the time in our in our legal documents, in our in our in the constitution, in law, people are you know nitpicking over the way words are put out to decide the fates of men and women throughout history. But if you can get if you can circumvent how much we rely on words and just if you're in a position where you can just use images, you can reach so many more people and you can unite so many more people and it is unity that is the source of all of the power to change events it's beautiful and it's it's uh it can be seen as a threat it can be um as a threat to the status quo as a threat to people who are doing the oppression the oppression so i am so honored to be in a position where I can speak to my community in this way.
2: And we are honored that you continue to use your art to speak, but to also bring people together. Kweijo Adai is a visual artist and he's founder of the Adai Fine Art Academy in New Haven. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much, take care.
2: Coming up, a conversation with the owner of a new business and how she's planning to modernize local community centers and later, how the Long Wharf Theater is amplifying the voices of marginalized playwrights. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Stay with us.
0: Welcome
2: back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we hear from three New Haven artists who are using their voices to make communities more inclusive. Later, the Longworth Theater director Jacob Padron on the power of telling stories from underrepresented communities. But first, Alicia Crutchfield-McLean. She worked in the fashion industry with celebrities like Kanye West, Ludacris, and Bette Mittler. This year, she shifted gears and opened a new shop called Bloom. She sees it as an urban oasis meets community center. It includes a co-working space, lifestyle boutique, cafe, and a therapeutic retreat. She's using her fashion background to empower local artisans across Connecticut. Alicia, welcome to Disrupted.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: So we mentioned that you are the owner of a new store in New Haven, but you really got your start in the fashion industry, working with a lot of celebrities like Ludacris and Kanye West. You've been creative director for the Miss Universe competition. Talk to us about your love of fashion and how it has become this passion for you.
0: So I have been working as a fashion stylist, consultant, for about 20 years, and like you said, I've worked with Ludacris, Kanye, Bette Midler, Ariana Grande, the Who's of Who, and it was a beautiful, wonderful, fulfilling career. I got my start very young. I was always into fashion magazines and interior design. You know, my my grandmother, her idea of going out and, you know, having fun with the kids was shopping. So we would spend most of our weekends in shopping stores, department stores, malls, when they were like fun and, you know, the place to be. So, and I enjoyed that, you know, I enjoyed observing people. I enjoyed just touching fabric and, you know, just seeing and just kind of being immersed in fashion. So I think that was, that was my start unbeknownst to me until I got, to college, I was initially a a psychology and computer science major. And I just, you know, how it goes, you go to college, you think, you know, what you want to do. And then, you know, it changes. And I jumped into apparel merchandising and that's where I think my love for fashion, just in terms of the technical, technical part of it, the business side of it came about
2: you you got your start in fashion you talked about this love that you inherited from your grandmother and this experience and this connection and you've worked with all of these famous celebrities and we know what that fashion looks like but alicia you also have been working with everyday people in style consulting and and helping them think about the style that they want to curate How different is that experience from working with these big name celebrities to working with everyday people?
0: So working with big name celebrities requires some sort of creative direction. Um, There's a mood board. You have to kind of stick to this rigid, creative direction and mood board. Whereas working with people, I'm truly engaging with them. I'm helping them inside and outside by telling a story through clothes, through style. And that is I say both are uplifting, but working with everyday people is more uplifting for me. Um, I've always loved people and working with people and I get upliftment from others being uplifted. So that was always a part of who, that is who I am. That's a part of who I am. My mom said I was always just just a social bug from the young age of two, you know, just happy-go-lucky and happy to be around people and wanting to make people smile. So working with everyday people has become more of my purpose. And that is why I started Bloom.
2: So let's talk about this space that you have created and the many ways that you are helping people, not just shoppers, but really creating a space for community and to do that in a way that is intentional, but also what I think is so powerful, it allows you to create space for other artists and creatives. Talk to us about Bloom, your your new store in New Haven and what you want to create with this new entity.
0: So Bloom is a modern and very unique take on a community center. It's a place where people come to shop, to meet, to gather things, time. We house a flower shop. We house a cafe, we have a wellness room, there is a gift shop, obviously, and then a lounge. And we just expanded to another space next door, which is gonna be our co working space. So it's all of these things in this community center. And most of what you'll see in a space, including the beverages and the snacks, are made by local makers, local designers, local artisans. And if they're not, the brand just aligns with our ethos, which is, you know, handmade quality, sustainability, bring some sort of upliftment to people, whether it's mental or physical.
2: I think about where we are in this pandemic and how difficult the last 18 months have been for many of us because of wanting to stay safe and healthy and have this social distancing, but still wanting a connection to people and to community. How are you able to connect people even though we are still in the middle of a pandemic? Because I have to say it's risky, to be an entrepreneur at any time. But to open a small business in the middle of this pandemic and to do so well, what is it that keeps you going?
0: So the motto is gather, thrive, grow. And now more than ever, we need to be here for each other. We need to be uplifted. Yes, we've had a hellish almost two years, you know, and it hasn't been good for many and hasn't been perfect for me either. And I just... I had to pivot. I was commuting from New Haven to New York for almost five years because I lived in New York prior to moving to New Haven. I was commuting and I had to pivot. I had to figure out my next career or business move. I thrive when I'm thriving, and it was no way that I was going to let this pandemic sit me down. And so I said, What can I do to kind of bring all the things that I love and my love for people? together in a space that would provide some sort of upliftment during this tough time. And so, like I said, I created all of these nooks within this community center space, and I just reached out to the community and they just started coming. You know, they say you, you create it, they'll come. And that's what's happened. And yes, it was a risk financial risk as well. And I just, I, I put my savings in, you know, I got a small grant from DECD and I just, I took off running and I said, I'm going to create this space. I, I truly believe in what I'm doing. I've dreamt about it and I'm just going to do it. And I, the community support has been amazing to say the least. I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful. I am, I am beyond grateful. The support just continues to flow in. And it just, that fuels me to want to sustain and create more and do more. I don't
2: want that point to be lost for our listeners. That you have created a space where other artists, other creatives can gather, but also can display and showcase their work and be supported in ways that particularly creators of color often feel like they are not adequately supported. And I have to tell you, Alicia, as we were thinking about this conversation that we're having, I was thinking about the fact that we, earlier this week, learned about the death of Virgil Abloh, who died at just 41 years old, just so incredibly young, but used his time to really create opportunities for others as artistic director at Louis Vuitton, creating his own brand, showing people you can be a creator, a creative, and also an entrepreneur that gives back to community. When you think about your role in all of these spaces, what do you take from the legacy of people very young, like Virgil Abloh, who are creating new opportunities?
0: I am thoroughly inspired by Virgil and and many of um, people, many people like him. And I just, I take away that idea, that mission, that purpose to do, to just do, to act on this passion, this calling, and to not let fear or pandemic (laughs) stop me from doing that. Um, I mean, you you said it perfectly. This is my passion and my calling, and this is my way of giving back to the community, and not just any community. Westville has embraced me, has has taken me in, and I just feel like this is giving back to the community in Westville. It's such a diverse and very inclusive community. There's still more work to be done in terms of diversity and inclusion, and 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 tough conversations and togetherness and a part of what Bloom is, is a community enrichment program. So you have the retail, but you have this community enrichment. And that is having a safe space for people to gather and have conversations, informal, casual conversations. And we've seen it every day. I mean, different races, cultures, creeds. I mean, it's just such a overwhelming and, Uplifting sight to see, to hear, to partake in. So, to answer your question, I just I take the tenacity and the drive that Virgil and many like him have invested in when it comes to community. It just fuels me to continue doing what I need to do and to just stay resilient, to stay positive, um, and you know, just keep going. For as long as I can, oh, I'm just, I'm sorry, I have the chills because it's just so sad, such, so young, you know, so young to lose such a, a, a inspirational, um, uh, super uber creative. It's how life is, you just never know, you know, and so like I said, now more than ever is my time to just do for as long as I'm here.
2: Alicia Crutchfield-McLean is a fashion consultant and owner of the store Bloom in New Haven. Alicia, we wish you the best.
0: Thank you. I appreciate
2: you all. When we return, Jacob Padrone shares how his time as a social worker frames the way he now runs the historic Long Wharf Theater. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we're meeting some creative disruptors from New Haven, Connecticut. Our next guest has spent the greater part of his career pushing the theater industry to be more inclusive. Jacob Pedrone was named the Artistic Director of the Historic Wharf Theater in New Haven in 2018. He's also founder of the Soul Project. It's a national theater initiative amplifying the voices of Latino playwrights. After a virtual 2020 season, Jacob is embarking on his first full slate of shows as the theater's leading creative voice. Jacob, welcome to Disrupted.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here.
2: Now, most people may not understand the real breadth of your background in this field. You've been working in theater for nearly two decades. That's surprising to me because you look so young, Jacob. But it's also about this lifelong commitment and passion that you have. What sparked that passion for you about the theater?
1: you know the 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 passion for theater and the passion that theater has worked to do in this world absolutely began um, growing up in Gilroy, California, which is just south of San Francisco. You know, there wasn't a whole lot going on in Gilroy, but the one kind of saving grace for me as a young person was it was really close to a, a seminal theater company called the farm worker Theater, El Teatro Campesino. Um, started in 1965, the same year that Longworth Theater was founded, which is so surprising. Um, but the idea um, of that theater company is how to how do we use theater as a catalyst for social justice? It was around bringing awareness to the plight of the migrant workers um, and actually using theater to illuminate and to amplify their struggle. Um, And so, you know, as a kid, I remember I was eight years old when I went to my first play at the Farmworker Theater. So those seeds were planted very, very early on. And, you know, it wasn't until I went to graduate school that I felt like I really began my journey of being a storyteller and a theater maker.
2: There is a power of theater to connect people, to connect stories and experiences, to help people imagine a world beyond what they already know. I was thinking about what it meant for me in this small town in Virginia at seven to go to my first production, and I was hooked ever since because it was a way to to say, here's this human connection regardless of your identity. But what you mentioned is that power of theater to be very conscious in making that connection. How do these goals of connection, of storytelling, of building community, how does that shape what you are doing at Long Wharf? You know, Kalila, it's with me
1: every day. I think that when I was uh, a candidate for the job to become the new artistic director, I really led with that. I really led with that on its best days, theater is social work. Theater has the power to change lives. I've seen it uh, because it changed my life. One of the other things that I really led with and I continue to lead with is that one of the things I love about the theater and about the stage is that it's a place that can hold all of our stories. One of my mentors, Oscar Eustace, who is the artistic director of the public theater, he, he talks about this idea of the big tent, that we have to create the big tent for all of us to, to be able to live under. But we have to be better architects of making that tent wider and the circle wider. So I, you know, I've always believed that. I think that the theater is a place that we can reveal in our collective humanity and to celebrate our differences actually, right? That, That we are made stronger and richer when we get to experience the stories by people who look and sound different than us that the theater is a place where we can celebrate that difference. So it's certainly with me every day. You know, the other piece that you may not know about me, Kalila, is uh, I was a social worker before I became a theater producer. So after I left, uh, I graduated from Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. That took me to North Carolina, um, and I did HIV AIDS work with an organization called the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. Uh, and so I thought, this is, I was like, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. You know, really a life of service, uh, a life of ministry and social work. But then I moved to to Baltimore and did my first professional theater internship. And I knew that I had found my home. And, you know, I think that there is a way to, to combine the work of social work and storytelling. And I think that that in many ways has become my life's work.
2: Your life's work is about affirming that humanity that exists in all of us and a humanity that often gets overlooked or denied. But Jacob, I also know the experience of theater of telling particular stories to particular audiences and what happens when you disrupt that notion of for whom theater is intended, but also the audience that you want to cultivate and curate within that tent. Have you faced any opposition in this direction or people saying that's not the vision for what this very important institution, regional theater with national and international reputation should be about?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, it's, I get asked this question quite a bit and my response is always, it depends on when you ask me because there are some days where I feel incredibly supported and so inspired by this vision of what it means to be a theater for everyone, theater that is rooted of, for and by its community. And then there are some days where folks are um, angry. They think about the history of who Longworth has been rather than who Longworth can become. And what I say, again, going back to that idea of the big tent is for those who have been coming to Longworth theater for 50 plus years, right? I've been a subscriber for 40 years, for 30 years, you know, Longworth theater, like so many regional theaters in this country, largely white, largely wealthy, largely highly educated. And what I say to those folks is, you know, thank you. Thank you for being a part of the tent. Thank you for being a part of of Longworth theater's family. You are important and this theater company is still your theater company. And we have to build bridges to those who haven't always felt welcomed, who haven't always been seen. The theater, again, is a space that can hold all of us. So it's not an and or, it's an and and. And what I also say to those folks who have been coming for many years is, come on the journey with us. Be a part of the process of building bridges, right? That the theater could also be the connective tissue that brings all of our neighborhoods together. And wouldn't that be a glorious thing that you are also a part of that process, you
2: are part of that journey. And I had the honor of attending the opening night of the Chinese lady at Long Warp. And Jacob, there was this moment before the show started where I just scanned the audience and looked at the people who were in the room and thought, how many other spaces in New Haven would this collection of people be together? And part of that reality is you are an artistic director, but you are running an enterprise that is also dependent on ticket sales and donors and sponsors and support. There's that reality of the economic piece of it. And now that the theater has reopened after the the shutdowns related to COVID, it also means that now this is your first full year. Talk to us about that excitement, that challenge of having your first full year, all the expectations, all of the challenges that you're navigating and the stories that you're bringing to life.
1: It's been incredibly challenging, uh, as as you can imagine. It's been really tough, right, to be an artistic director in this moment because, you know, I was appointed in February of 2019. So I had, you know, I was just finding sort of my sea legs, as they say, Um, I had just about a year under my belt. I was trying to really be out in the community. I remember one of the questions, that a board member asked me during the search process. He said, so, Jacob, you're six months in. What have you, you know, what will you have accomplished? And I said, Jim, you know, if I'm really doing my job well, not a whole lot. And I didn't and I wasn't being facetious. But what I said is, you know, what, what I meant was my job when I come to the community is it is to listen and to get to know folks. Because I think sometimes what happens is that as leaders and as institutions, sometimes we we parachute in. We think we understand what the needs of our communities are. And so what I said to him is you're actually not gonna see me at the office. You're gonna, I'm gonna be out in the community. I'm gonna be out building bridges. I'm gonna be out understanding what are the tensions and what are the conversations that our communities need to be having. So I was deep in the middle of that work and then the shutdown happened. And we were also in rehearsal for the Chinese lady. We were in rehearsal. We were just days away from being able to welcome audiences to see that glorious show. So the shutdown happened. And I think that we knew that in order to survive, to get to the other side, that we had to really take care of each other. And that's the thing that we tried to do to the best of our ability. As imperfect as it was, we tried to take care of our artists, our donors, our audiences, and our staff. That was really important to us to make sure that our staff felt cared for and that community care was something that we were always talking about. Because if we weren't centering on community care and and letting people have a process around what we were all experiencing, which is incredible grief incredible trauma, we weren't going to be able to get to the other side. So when, so that night that you were a part of, it felt like a real moment of celebration because we had been through so much as a theater company and the challenges are still there. We're still wrestling. We're still navigating. We're still trying to figure out how we come into this new future together, but it was incredibly powerful. Uh, And so the theme Kalila, that you may be picking up on is the theme of partnership. That, that, is a, that, that's, that really is so important to us at Longworth Theatre, in addition to our other pillars of artistic innovation, radical inclusion, and revolutionary partnerships. I actually really feel like the, 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 the future of arts and culture, and specifically for theatre companies, is to have partners. You know, it's a real expensive to do this work. Um, so it's not just about sharing the financial resources, but it's also about coming together around values, around process, How can we inspire each other? How can our theater companies learn from each other? So so that's something that we're really leaning into this season um, as we move forward as a theater company.
2: I'm listening to you talk about all of these partnerships, all of these collaborations, the ways that you are building bridges and now creating opportunities for other people, opportunities for others as writers and as creators, and of rethinking... What theater can be, but also, Jacob, what theater can feel like. How do you think about this, this current programming season that you're in and then thinking about that as a launch for the next season? And I don't know, maybe I'm jumping the gun there, but you have now created this expectation of what can happen when theaters partner and don't see themselves in competition, but really a part of this symphony of creation together.
3: Yes,
1: I love that. A symphony. Well, the thing that we know about New Haven and our surrounding community, I mean, it's such a rich artistic ecosystem. And I think the way that we can strengthen that ecosystem, not just here locally, but I think really across the state and really be a model for the rest of the country is that when we come together, we are stronger. And I think that uh, we have to center the mentality of abundance rather than one of scarcity. And I think that when we center that as a real animating value, I think that uh, we will be a kind of unstoppable force. And so I'm always interested in how do we amplify and support the work of the Schubert Theater? How do we amplify and support the work of the the Festival of Arts and Ideas? How do we support and amplify the work at Hartford Stage um, in the Bushnell? Like, I think that the more that we can come together and be an artistic and creative community that locks arms and says, I see the work you're doing, and I hope you see the work that I'm doing, and how do we celebrate that work together? The other thing that I'm really reflecting on as it relates to that question, Kalila, is, you know, one of the things that we tried to do during the pandemic was really center the community. So we had an artistic congress, the idea being that um, how do we actually talk about art and activism living side by side? So we had artists speak, we had activists speak, um, and we brought to our, our community together for a two-day convening virtually. And one of the uh, keynote addresses was by one of my heroes. His name is Luis Alfaro, and he's a playwright based in Los Angeles and a professor at the University of Southern California. And one of the things that he said was that we are in a time of pause. The great pause has become the great possibility. How do we use this time of pause to, again, imagine a better future for arts and culture, to imagine a better new American theater? He goes on to say, you know, because of this pause, my thinking is not the same. My loving is not the same. My language is not the same. Let Let us not go back to the way it used to be. That theater and what theater does best is an invitation to change. Change is the only given. Change is what we have to do, I think, to survive this moment and to get to a better tomorrow.
2: Jacob, I feel like I just want to say amen and close this out, but you you are a powerful storyteller. And the power of your storytelling is that you help other people write and create and affirm their stories and provide platforms for them to do that. And I... It's important to think about that legacy in that way of whatever platform you have, whatever position you have, you have used that to empower others. And one of the ways that you've done that is through the Soul Project and creating that as an entity to lift up these creators who too often their work gets overlooked. Talk to us about the mission of that project and what led you to create it.
1: Oh, the passion project of the soul, of the soul project. It started, the seed was planted in uh, 2013. I had just moved from from Chicago to New York city um, to start working as a producer at the public theater. We were working on lots of really exciting projects including Hamilton when I arrived at the public. And one of the things that I clocked pretty early on when I arrived in New York was, wow, we really are in the theater Mecca, you know, the theater capital in so many ways. But I, I quickly noticed, I'm like, where are my Latinx sisters and brothers? We are in a city of Latinos. And I don't see those, those stories and those experiences reflected on our stages, right? If we are, if we are meant to use the stage to reflect the kaleidoscope of our cities and our communities, we have to be more intentional. And so I thought to myself, I think there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an opportunity here. So I, I went to a convening that happened in Boston organized by an online journal called HowlRound and the Latino Theater Commons. And what they did was they brought together about 80 to 90 uh, Latinx um, artists and leaders and makers to really look at the state of the American theater and where Latino artists were a part of that conversation. So it was three days. And at the end of that convening, they had us in a circle, everyone, all the participants in a circle, and they gave us a note card and said, "You know, what are you going to do to take the kind of inspiration and the work that happened over the 3 days here in Boston back to your communities because you know how it is kaleela right you go to a convening you go to a conference you get fired up and then you you know you sometimes kind of go back to business as usual and so what's your offering write down your offering on this note card and then put it in the middle of the circle so that way others can bear witness to your offering so i wrote down i you know i was like i'm i wrote down i'm going to create an initiative that amplifies Latinx voices when I get back to New York City. And so I made that, I put that offering in the middle of the circle. And then when I got back to New York, I I, I got to work. And I just started to have conversations with folks. And, you know, the mission of the Soul Projects is to amplify the voices of Latinx artists in New York City and beyond. And the way that we try to manifest that mission and vision is we partner with off-Broadway theaters in New York primarily and say, you need to do one of our plays. You need to center one of our stories in your main stage season, you know, because for better or worse, when a writer has a play in New York city, it means something. It brings a kind of visibility and it brings a kind of awareness to our community. The other thing that I try to really talk to our partners about is let's dismantle the mythology that Latinx artists and communities don't come to the theater, right? That it is a part of our cultural tradition. But like any relationship, you have to cultivate that relationship. You can't just do one play by a Latinx artist and then think that that audience is going to come. It has to be—it has to be a relationship that is stewarded, and you have to keep showing up. You have to keep making space for our communities in order for there to be a real relationship. So we're about halfway—you know, sort of we're, sort of halfway in the middle of that initiative. We the hope is to do twelve Latinx plays off Broadway, and we're um, at play number six. So we're just chipping away, trying to move as my, as one of my mentors, Diane Billings Burford says, move the needle. Your job, Jacob is just try to keep moving the needle. So we're just, you know, we're, we're chipping away. And the hope is that when the soul project sunsets, that we have, we will have planted enough seeds that will that will sprout and that will ripple across the country for years to come. Because again, we want to be a part of that. How do we build that new American theater for all to partake in? And and I and I feel very committed to doing my part to amplify the voices of the Latino community, which in some ways brings us back full circle, right? Because my life started with El Teatro Campesino. You know, it started with a theater company that was all about centering. Um, Mexicans and specifically farm workers.
2: Well, I have no doubt that you have planted many seeds and it is a joy for us across community to watch those seeds develop and bloom. Jacob Padron is Artistic Director at Longworth Theatre and founder of The Soul Project. Jacob, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. This is such a pleasure.
2: To learn more about Jacob Padrone, Quajo Adai, and Alicia Crutchville McLean, you can visit our website at slash disrupted. Do you know someone in your community who is a disruptor? You can let us know. Send an email to disrupted at ctpublic.org. This episode was produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. We'll be back next week.